Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As he's investigated, Donald Trump once again claims he's the victim. The lead starts right now. The former president is on the campaign trail in Iowa, and he just weighed in on CNN's Blockbuster reporting that the special counsel has a recording of him, Trump, acknowledging that he kept classified material after leaving the White House. Mr. Trump's former attorney will join me live in minutes. Plus, new federal election interference charges filed against a Republican state lawmaker candidate who's accused of shooting his gun at the homes of several Democratic officials. Then. A new discovery about a revolutionary weight loss drug. Patients say it actually helps curb other addictions, such as smoking or drinking. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead. And the first public reaction from former President Donald Trump in response to CNN's blockbuster reporting since matched by The New York Times and Washington Post in his classified documents case on the campaign trail in Iowa. This afternoon, Mr. Trump refused to directly answer questions about a recording now in the hands of federal prosecutors where Trump is said to be talking about classified materials that he kept in his possession after leaving the White House. But the former president did go after those investigators with his usual complaints of being a victim of a witch hunt. In moments, I'm going to be joined by Trump's former lawyer, Tim Parlatori, who left the legal team just a few weeks ago and played a key role in the classified documents investigation. Uh, But first, we are going to start with CNN's Paula Reed, who's going to take a closer look at how this recording could theoretically impact the federal investigation into Mr. Trump moving forward. Former President Donald Trump today campaigning in Iowa, refusing to take questions on the bombshell revelation he was recorded discussing classified information. Mr. President, why didn't you take classified documents concerning General... But continued to claim he's a victim of federal investigators. I'm a victim of it. They've come after me. They've come after me on many things. This after CNN's exclusive reporting that prosecutors now have an audio recording of Trump talking about a classified plan to invade Iran while he was at his Bedminster golf club months after he left the White House. Among those attending the meeting, several Trump aides and two people working on an autobiography for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. None of them had security clearances. During this time, Trump had aides record his conversation with journalists and writers. They become automatically declassified when I took them. Trump, under investigation for his handling of national security secrets, has previously insisted that he declassified any sensitive material in his possession. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. But sources tell CNN on this recording, Trump claims to still be in possession of a Pentagon document, suggests he would like to share it, and then acknowledges the limits of his ability to declassify it. All of this undercutting his own defense. 
asked if he had ever shared any information at CNN's town hall. Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after. Not, Not that I can think of. Let me just tell you. I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. The summer 2021 recording comes out of Trump's New Jersey Golf Club. It's now the second confirmed state where he has had classified information after the FBI walked out of his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida with boxes of top-secret documents. The Trump campaign saying the DOJ's continued interference in the presidential election is shameful and this meritless investigation should cease wasting the American taxpayers' money on Democrat political objectives. This is persecutorial justice. Jim Trusty, one of Trump's lawyers representing him in the criminal investigation, says Trump did declassify all material in question, but... I'm not trying the case in the media. I'm not going to sit here and address the document as if it's right or if that audio tape exists or as if it's not something that's really wrong. Trump's legal team has requested a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland to express what they say are their concerns about the special counsel's investigation. And last night, one of Trump's attorneys told CNN that there have been some discussions back and forth about the possibility of a meeting. But the fact that investigators have this recording, that really undercuts the Trump team's central argument against this investigation, which is the argument that it's merely a politically motivated probe. Jake? All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's bring in former uh, Trump attorney uh, Tim Parlatori. Uh, he left the Trump legal team just over two weeks ago in May. He's the lawyer who organized the searches of multiple Trump properties for these classified documents uh, last year. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. So have you heard this tape or seen a transcript of it? Uh, unfortunately, even if I had heard it, um, ethically, I wouldn't be allowed to, um, to say that since I no longer represent the president. But I, I so our understanding. All right. Well, the public reporting suggests that Donald Trump is on the uh, tape and that the legal team knows about the tape and learned about the tape in March of this year when you worked for them. Is that true uh, that you knew about the existence of this tape and that the investigators had it? Uh, again, as to what I knew back when I was on the team, that's not something I'm allowed to speak about, unfortunately. As so I'd like to answer. On the just, tape. I'm, I'm not allowed to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm not sure what you can talk about, but on the tape, uh, we are told Mr. Trump is talking about, he's trying to push back on a report in the New Yorker suggesting that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was trying to stop Donald Trump from going to war with Iran in the last weeks of his presidency. And he suggests that he has a document. We hear ru- rustling of paper. We're not sure if that's the document or not, but he says he has a document that, w- that right. would disprove it. Uh, and it's, I guess, a, a battle plan from the Pentagon. But he also says in this tape, based on what we know, what we've been told, and also the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, that he couldn't share it with these individuals. These are two individuals hired to write Mark Meadows' autobiography uh, because it's classified. Uh, I don't know what you're allowed to talk about, but does that sound accurate? Well, if that is what, in fact, the tape says, um, it's something that you would have to actually match it up with a document. Uh, one of the interesting things I found is that it seems to be describing this, uh, this memo written by Milley that my understanding is Mark Milley has, has said that that thing doesn't exist. So if you can't match up an actual document as to what he was you know, allegedly talking about, you, know, you have no idea, unfortunately, whether 
whether he's actually talking about something or if he's saying, I have proof of that, but you know, I'm not going to show it to you because it's classified. Yeah, I, I, I unfortunately don't know the answer to that. So when the Trump legal team sent a letter to the House Intelligence Committee at the end of April, and you were part mm-hmm. of the team at this time, uh, the letter said in part, quote, we have seen yes. absolutely no indication that President Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke any laws. That doesn't seem to be true based on this reporting. Um, And I guess I'm wondering, are you concerned at all that the Trump team made a false statement to Congress? No, what we put in that letter, everything that's in that letter was certainly true at the time that we wrote it. Uh, If some other information comes out that shows that portions of it, you know, were inaccurate, you know, that's that's a different issue. But here's the thing. Whether it was classified or declassified is not really something that's relevant to the statute that we're talking about here, because really what DOJ is investigating is willful retention of national defense information. Whether it's classified or declassified is not an element of that offense. So, yeah, I always kind of looked at the you know, the whole declassification issue as kind of an extraneous uh, piece uh, because it ultimately isn't going to change anything. People have been convicted under this statute for possessing unclassified materials, this national defense information. People have been acquitted for possessing top secret documents that were not national defense information and were actually overclassified. So the question is, if Donald Trump is out there and his lawyers are out there uh, representing the idea that he uh, immediately de- declassified everything that he brought with him to Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster, that uh, he could do so automatically by taking it or with his mind, as he told Sean Hannity, this tape would seem to contradict that understanding of declassification because it seems to suggest that Donald Trump knew in July 2021, that a document he was holding he could not share with individuals because it was still classified. That's the idea here, that he, the, if the, the intent and the willful understanding of the declassification laws, that this would undermine what Mr. Trump and his legal team have been claiming in terms of their understanding of the status of those documents. And if if that tape uh, is authentic and if it matches up to an actual document, um, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, but again, he's not being investigated for you know mishandling classified materials. He's investi- being investigated for willful retention of national defense information. You know, whether something has a classification marking or not, that's just one analyst's opinion as to whether it constitutes national defense information. If you're in the military then you could be prosecuted under the UCMJ for possession of classified materials because that's an orders violation. It actually goes under the orders violation where you have to respect that. But outside of that, and especially for people like Donald Trump who never had a security clearance himself, it has to actually constitute national defense information, not simply something that may have been declassified, may have not been properly declassified. You know, classification and declassification is very collateral to this. But wouldn't a battle plan to attack Iran be considered national defense information? It depends. Uh, If it is a plan, I mean, a lot of it depends on if it exists, 
How detailed is it? Uh, is it a, you know, a fairly rudimentary proposal from Mark Milley to the president that was outright rejected? Uh, does it give, you know, very detailed plans? Uh, if it's something that happened, you know, a few years ago and it's outdated and the re national defense information is something that, if released, would be damaging to the United States. The fact that a plan was even discussed about invading Iran, if the release of that is something that's damaging to the United States, the Mark Milley already released that. He was the first person to bring that out. So, really, it's one of those things that... In, in the legal sense, it goes to the jury where they have to look at the document and they have to make a determination as to whether it's national defense information. Well, I, I think the Susan Glasser piece that describes Mark Milley that got Mr. Trump angry uh, doesn't talk yeah. about a document. It talks about Trump wanting to invade Iran. So it isn't a document per se, whereas what the, the, as we're, this is described to us at CNN, Donald Trump is holding a document or referring to a document in which that would, in his view, disprove the claim being made. But let me ask you something. If this tape is authentic sure. and it is as described to us at CNN as well as the New York Times and the Washington Post, is that not damaging to Donald Trump and his current legal team? Does it not disprove, if it is as described, his, his claim about the possession of information he had? So as to, you know, the legal side of things, a lot of that depends. You know, if he's describing a document that was then put in the first 15 boxes and sent back to NARA, then under the willful retention, it's something that he willfully returned. Uh, so I, you have to go a little bit wider than that to understand the full context as to whether this is going to be something that will actually be damaging or not. Uh, certainly when it comes to, you know, the declassification, you know, whether things were declassified, you know, that's uh, because it's not an element of this particular offense. Uh, that may be a political question, mm -hmm. but not a legal question. So your former colleague, uh, Trump attorney Jim Trustee, said that Mr. Trump, quote, effectively declassified and personalized, unquote, records that he kept after he left office under the Presidential Records Act. Uh, would Defense Department documents, classified ones, uh, personal records or government pardon, uh, government records, um, would those be considered uh, under the Presidential Records Act that he could immediately declassify? That's all something that would have to be uh, really determined by a jury. The Presidential Records Act is relatively silent as to this particular issue. It's one of the reasons why when we were writing that letter to the HIPSI, we were trying to point out that this is a situation where there is a legislative solution. Uh, they, there are several procedures that the legislature can take up to ensure that there is more clarity in this, to ensure that proper procedures are followed to safeguard information both in the White House and during a presidential transition. And that's why we believed at the time, uh, I certainly still believe, that both this situation as well as the documents uh, that were found in Delaware uh, at Joe Biden's house, both of those are something that should be dealt with legislatively, not criminally. And DOJ mm -hmm. really shouldn't be you know, the lead on this. So lastly, sir, before you go, um, I know you haven't worked uh, for Mr. Trump sure. in, a, in a couple of weeks or so. As a very informed spectator at this point, do you expect that Jack Smith will indict your former client, Mr. Trump? I don't. Uh, I, 
I don't think that he will because really when you get down to the facts uh, of this case and the law, I don't think that it warrants an indictment. You know, this is a situation where uh, failure of process is what led to documents leaving the White House, going to Mar-a-Lago, failure of NARA to get a facility in Palm Beach, as they have for every other president since Reagan, uh, get a facility within the hometown of the president where they moved to, to move the documents to. That's what led directly to documents going to his house. And I think that when you, when you take all that together, uh, it becomes a very difficult case uh, to bring. Uh, and, and I would say the same thing about the Joe Biden case. Also, when you look at it from a trial lawyer's perspective, in order to bring this case, you know, let's, let's say that there is a real document about this Iran thing. They would have to declassify it so that they could bring it into the court so that they could show it to witnesses. By declassifying it, Jack Smith would essentially impliedly admit that it's not national defense information because well, the why release would they have of to it, you know, it? in could, court... Couldn't they, couldn't, couldn't they just say, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but wouldn't they, couldn't they just say this is sure. a classified document, it stands as a classified document, we cannot show it to the grand jury? Uh, I mean, that happens in courts all the time when there is information that cannot be shared. No, because the statute requires the jury to make a determination whether it constitutes national defense information. And like I said, people have been acquitted for possession of top secret documents because of overclassification. The document must be shown to the jury and the government must prove beyond a reasonable doubt every element that it does constitute national defense information. If you're doing it in a military courtroom where they have the ability to close it and they have jurors who all have security clearances, that's a different thing. But if you're going to do it in the U.S. District Court, as they're doing here, and obviously that's the only choice when it comes to this defendant, then you really do have to uh, bring it out in open court. You have to be able to show it to them. It's one of the reasons why when you have uh, prosecutions of people like you know, Manning or Reality Winner, things like that, or you know, now Texera up in Massachusetts, you can bring those because those documents have already been put out on the Internet. But cases you know, like this, if the allegations are, as they say, where the documents have not been publicly released, it becomes much more difficult. It's you know, the same reason why I would say you know, that they were right not to bring a prosecution against Hillary Clinton. It's the same reason why they shouldn't be bringing a prosecution against Joe Biden. It's the same reason why they don't think that they're going to bring a prosecution against Donald Trump. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the entire premises of the 2016 campaign of Donald Trump was to lock her up. But be that as it may, let me just ask you, you talked about the reason this happened is because the National Archives, you referred to that as NARA, uh, NARA um, yes. did not set up a place in Florida for Donald Trump to have his records to go through them as they have with other previous uh, former presidents. But this took place in Bedminster. This took place in New Jersey. Um, and there were also classified documents that had to be turned over uh, under the auspices of your leadership, I suppose, and the legal team from Bedminster. Yeah. So h- help, help us understand no. that uh, under, what, under, under what you're talking sure. about. So first of all, when we searched Bedminster, there were no classified documents or marked documents there. We did find documents in a storage uh, unit down in Florida where the documents have been moved from the White House down there. What happens is, every time an administration changes over, they box up all the papers, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, rents a facility in the hometown where the president is going to move to, they move all the documents to that secured facility, 
where they are under NARA control. The president and his staff, over the next two years, they go and they visit the documents, they go through them, and they decide what is presidential, what is personal. And then at the end of the two years, all the presidential documents get sent back up to D.C. In this case, NARA chose not to get a facility in Palm Beach for whatever reason. It's also something that they haven't done for any vice president. And when they don't get that type of facility, then GSA has no choice but to take these boxes and then they bring it to the residence of the now former president or former vice president. That failure right there, that and also the failure of document handling within the White House is the chain of events that leads marked documents to leave government control to end up in somebody's house. Everything that happens after right. that you cannot divorce it from the original thing. That's why you find documents in two vice presidents' houses. It's in Pence's house. It's in Biden's house. I think we're afraid to check Dick Cheney's house. It's why it's in President Trump's house. And it's also why they found them in, uh, in President Carter's house, who was the president who right, signed the Presidential Records Act, but it didn't apply to him, so they didn't do that. And NARA has also said that over the past 40 years, every administration since Reagan has returned up boxes to NARA that had a mixture of classified and unclassified documents. So when they chose not right. to get a facility in Palm Beach, they knew, based on 40 years of experience, that the boxes that were being shipped by GSA to Mar-a-Lago would have this type of mixture of documents. They didn't say anything about it. They should have said something about it at that time. They should have said something over the past 40 years if they have actual knowledge of a potential security vulnerability that White House document procedures are not up to the same standard as the military intelligence community. But, they didn't do that. Right. Now, I hear you on, on the need of Congress to address this legislatively, but there is a big difference between former Vice yeah. President Pence and, and, and President Biden finding documents, telling NARA about it, reporting it immediately, and this long legal tussle uh, that ultimately resulted in the FBI coming to Mar-a-Lago and grabbing uh, documents because they were concerned and they'd been trying to get them back. And Donald Trump and his team had been saying, or don't, let me just say Donald Trump, I don't know about the team, had been saying, no, 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 uh, these are ours. You can't take them. But let me ask you, because you talked about the storage area at Mar-a-Lago. Recently, it was reported yeah. that documents got moved out of that storage facility and then moved back into the storage facility before the FBI visited last year. Is, is that accurate? What can you tell us about that? That I don't know about. It. It's based on the public reporting. But what I've heard from the public reporting is that the allegation is the boxes were being moved while Evan Corcoran was in the middle of doing his search, uh, which is something that one would expect. Uh, the boxes were moved the day before DOJ uh, personnel were going to go down there for a meeting, not for a search. So moving boxes before that meeting doesn't have any impact on the meeting. They're not coming down for a search. Moreover, the idea that all the boxes must stay in this room and not be moved at all, it, it ignores the reality that this is not a museum. This is an operating business. There are other things in that storage room than just boxes of documents. And so you would expect in an operating business that boxes would be moved. You know, I would see boxes being moved around you know, CNN headquarters, but that's not obstruction of justice. And similarly, but, 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 but it's during we don't, that we don't have boxes and boxes of classified materials. We don't have boxes and boxes of classified materials. And there's materials nothing to the indicate... Archives is trying to get and we're but resisting. These are boxes I mean, that's that he's the big difference. To be going through. 
The resistance, let, let me speak about that, because the resistance okay. or the appearance of the resistance, that all comes about because DOJ comes in and they addressed it the way that they did. And anytime you have DOJ come in with a grand jury subpoena, somebody like me gets called to come in. And my job as a criminal defense attorney is not to work through narrow uh, negotiations. It's to make sure that my client's rights are protected. And part of that is slow down the process, try to work through it, communicate with DOJ, uh, try and get extensions on the subpoena and do all of these things. And so really by the tactics that DOJ took at the time, in my opinion, that created a, an appearance of noncompliance, an appearance of this resistance, where really that's the exact same thing that you would expect in any white collar investigation. But as applied here, it's been substituted for evidence. But Mr. Parlatore, you have already acknowledged uh, when you left that there were individuals, namely Boris Epstein, a Trump attorney who you thought was getting in the way of allowing you to protect your former client, Donald Trump. And we know because he has said so on air that Donald Trump thinks he can declassify things just by thinking about them, or he had some standing order uh, to declassify any document he took with him, even though we can't find any legitimate source who says that they, you know, a senior source who, who says that they, they had heard such a thing. I mean, this is somebody who thinks that just by willing it into being declassified, it's declassified. Uh, and you have already acknowledged that there's at least one individual, Mr. Epstein, that is uh, enabling those unrealistic views of the situation that the former president is in. Well, so a lot of your question there goes to more political concerns than legal concerns. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm a lawyer. I don't get involved with the campaign. Uh, the idea that, um, yeah, I'm not, I don't plan on talking about, you know, Boris any more than I already have. But one thing I will say is that our disagreement was over litigation strategy. There is nothing that Boris did that, in my opinion, you know, amounts to any you know, wrongdoing or obstruction. We were trying to do a voluntary search and we had a difference of opinion. Uh, I'm not going to get into any more of the specifics of that, but there's nothing, um, you know, certainly nothing criminal about that. That is a disagreement we had and something that, you know, among other things, led to my decision to leave. But a lot of these other, you know, statements and, and everything else, that really is more of political questions. And it doesn't change, you know, my opinion based solely on the facts and the law that whether you agree with any of these things or not, it's not something that he should be indicted for, and it's certainly not something that anybody should go to jail over. Last question, sir, and that is you talked about how the storage facility in Mar-a-Lago, it's a place of business, Mar-a-Lago, and the storage facility uh, there, uh, there were other things in that storage facility along with these documents, many of which have been described as top secret and, and uh, important to national security. Isn't that in and of itself problematic, the idea that this is a place of business, other things are in this storage facility. I don't know who had access to the storage facility. I don't know who had access to Mar-a-Lago. It's a place of business. Thousands of people are going in and out of that place of business. Who knows who had access or looked at those documents? Well, so first of all, it was a locked storage room that's under, in a facility that is under secret service protection. Uh, 
should it be in that facility as opposed to, to a narrow rented facility in downtown Palm Beach? No. And that is why we went to the, uh, to the House Intel Committee and said, and the Senate Intel Committees, and said, this is something that needs to be corrected. NARA should have gotten a facility. GSA should never have brought these things to Mar-a-Lago to begin with. But the fact that they were there and the fact that you have these boxes in a storage room in a facility that is you know, very secure under Secret Service protection, we now know after the fact what was in the boxes, but the fact that people knew at the time that there were just boxes of documents, you know, that doesn't uh, make out any type of improper intent. You know, the only impropriety here I see is the fact that they were moved there in the first place. All right, Tim Parlatori, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and answering my questions. Appreciate it. All right, thank you very much for having me. What the White House is saying about President Biden's fall today on stage at a graduation ceremony, that's next. A rather nasty spill for President Biden just a few hours ago during the Air Force Academy commencement in Colorado Springs. Let's get right to CNN's uh, Phil Manningly. Phil, um, what happened? What is the White House saying about the president's fall? How is he doing? Yeah, Jake, you know well, there's a longstanding tradition of the commander in chief attending a service academy graduation. And as part of that uh, effort, as part of his attendance, it is uh, traditional to give remarks. The president gave 35 minutes of remarks and then hand out to each graduate, each cadet, their diploma, which the president did for more than 90 minutes, uh, exchanging salutes, exchanging greetings. Uh, but that was pretty much what was defined by that moment until the president turned around after the last cadet received their diploma to walk back to his seat. In that moment, he tripped over what appears to be a sandbag uh, and took a nasty fall. He was helped back up and then immediately went back to his seat without assistance. Now, the White House says uh, he's okay. Karine Jean-Pierre, as they boarded Air Force One to come back to D.C., said said he's totally fine. The president waved and smiled at reporters as he boarded Air Force One. So everything seems fine at this point in time. Uh, Most of the event, almost the entirety of the event, went very much according to plan and tradition, except for that fall. The president, though, according to his team, they say he's fine, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Uh, Turning to our money lead now, after an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote in the House of Representatives last night, attention now turns to the U.S. Senate as leaders there scramble to set a vote on the bill to prevent a catastrophic U.S. default for the first time in American history. That would be ahead of the Monday deadline. Joining us now for an exclusive interview, Democratic Senator from New Hampshire, Gene Shaheen. Uh, Senator, I know you want to talk about the bill for Afghan allies, and we'll get to that in one second, an important issue for me as well. But first, I want to get your take uh, on the debt ceiling uh, fight uh, and what's going on. Uh, You say uh, that this deal, quote, isn't perfect, but you're still glad a compromise was reached. Uh, Should I interpret that as you're going to be a yay vote? Yes, I am going to be a yes vote. Um, It wasn't, if I had written it, I would have written it differently, but it was a compromise. A compromise is all about everybody giving something to get a final deal. The absolute worst alternative would have been a default for the United States. I spent last week talking to the people of New Hampshire about what a default might mean for us in in my state and What I heard is that it was unacceptable. We needed to come to a compromise. I'm glad that's happened. I'm glad it passed the House, and I hope today it will pass the Senate. Let's turn to your new legislation, which would increase the number of special immigrant visas, or SIVs, 
for the Afghan allies left behind. Uh, it would go from 4,000 to 20,000 under your proposal. It requires the State Department to address this massive backlog in applicants. Now, you've been working on the CIV program, Special Immigrant Visa Program, for years. What is the price tag on this new effort? And how are you going to sell this to Republicans who don't seem all that interested? Well, look, we have a responsibility to those Afghans who risk their lives to help our men and women serving in Afghanistan. And many of those Afghans saved American lives. I met four of them earlier this week in New Hampshire who helped our military who are in New Hampshire who are waiting to get a green card to start their lives again. They have families in Afghanistan who are being threatened by the Taliban. We have a responsibility. That's what this legislation is about. And it really comes from a report that my office did um, last fall that looked at the special immigrant visa program. I've been working on this since for over 10 years, starting with John McCain back when he was in the Senate. And this is an attempt to reduce the backlog, to help all of those Afghans who we made a promise to, and to ensure that they can get to safety, that they can start new lives, they can get to work. So the, uh, the Afghan Adjustment Act, uh, which would make evacuated Afghans eligible for permanent U.S. residency, as you know, that failed to be included in the omnibus spending bill last year, even though it had bipartisan support. And it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the main reason is that Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa blocked it over concerns about the vetting process. Um, The White House has pushed for it to be reintroduced. There have been efforts made, as I don't need to tell you, to assure him uh, and improve the vetting process. Are you and your colleagues ever going to be able to change Grassley's mind? And is he going to continue to be able to stand in the way of something that I think would pass the Senate with bipartisan support? Well, as you know, the Afghan Adjustment Act is separate from the Special Immigrant Visa Program. And sadly, for many years, um, Senator Grassley um, did everything he could to block our ability to get Afghans here under the SIV program. I I think the Afghan Adjustment Act, they're working with Senator Cotton, with some other senators to try and address some of the concerns. I do think that bill will get reintroduced And it's important for us to allow Afghans here in the United States who have been cleared to be in this country to go to work, to start new lives. You know, we have a workforce shortage in New Hampshire and across this country. Why don't we let those Afghans who have already demonstrated their loyalty to America to go to work, to help us and to start new lives? But is Grassley going to stand in the way of your new legislation, I guess would be my follow up. Well, we hope not. This is a bipartisan bill. Senator Roger Wicker, who's the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee, is my partner on this legislation. He's been a great partner taking over from John McCain. And he understands as much as anyone how critical it is for us to keep our promise to those Afghans who risk their lives to help Americans. Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen of the great state of New Hampshire, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. And this Sunday, I will be in Iowa hosting a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former South Carolina governor and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. That's at 8 o'clock Eastern. Then on Wednesday, it's the CNN Republican presidential town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence with Dana Bash. 
That's June 7th at 9 Eastern here on CNN. Coming up, a barrage of strikes in Ukraine and three people killed trying to get into a bomb shelter that was locked. We'll have the latest from the ground next. The American people's support for Ukraine will not waver. We've always stand up for democracies, always. That was President Biden not long ago this afternoon addressing Air Force Academy graduates in Colorado Springs. This after the United States, uh, the Biden administration announced its latest $300 million security assistance package for Ukraine, which includes uh, much needed air defense systems as Vladimir Putin continues his brazen, cruel assault on the civilians of Ukraine. CNN's Sam Kiley brings us now the latest heartbreaking story from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, including a mother and her nine-year-old daughter who were killed by falling missile fragments from Russia as that poor family was desperately trying to seek shelter. Grief has struck again in Kyiv. Overwhelming grief when a loved one is taken. Three people killed here in Russia's latest attack on Ukraine's capital. At 3 a.m., civilians ran for cover. The bunker was inexplicably locked. Debris from a downed missile killed two women and a child. A fatal accident in an all-too-deliberate attack. Such events are driving support for Ukraine from NATO, Europe and beyond. That is why every European country that borders Russia and that does not want Russia to tear it apart should be a full member of the EU and NATO. And there are only two alternatives to this, either an open war or creeping Russian occupation. NATO's weapons are already in use in Ukraine's east. And now Ukraine has launched a campaign inside Russian territory. At least eight people have been injured and hundreds evacuated from what are now frontline villages in Russia. The original sin of Russia's invasion of Ukraine compounded as it is by their continued targeting of civilians. The absolute brutality of their occupation has ceded Ukraine an unassailable position on the moral high ground. But they've got to hold on to that even as they prosecute their own campaigns inside Russian territory. A massive attack is ongoing. The lives of local people, primarily in Shebekino and nearby villages, are in danger. Anti-Putin Russians in Ukraine's forces claim to have raided his province a second time and broadcast these warnings. Stay in your homes, don't worry. Soldiers of the Russian Volunteer Corps are not at war with civilians. They claim to have hit Russian ammunition dumps and other military targets. But Russia says the raiders were driven out with heavy casualties. Still, Ukraine now holds the initiative on this front. Russia continues to rain misery from the sky. Yaroslav lost his wife and nine-year-old daughter in this raid on Kyiv. Nothing matters anymore, he says. There are no more people left. Now, uh, President Zelensky went public with his uh, decision or his insistence that the Ukrainian officials who left that door locked to that uh, bunker 
will be facing the full force of the law. Uh, no such uh, similar sort of prosecution facing uh, Vladimir Putin, not at least until he comes before the International Criminal Court. Jake? Yeah. CNN, Sam Kiley in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Uh, the new federal charges against a failed Republican candidate accused of shooting up the homes of his Democratic rivals. What the indictment reveals about his alleged plan of attack. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, a federal grand jury this week indicted a failed Republican candidate who does not appear to be particularly familiar with the concept of losing gracefully. 40-year-old Solomon Pena faces charges in connection with several shootings that targeted the homes of Democratic officials after he lost his midterm election bid for the New Mexico State House. CNN's Kyung La explains how this allegedly escalated from claims of election fraud to violence. These are significantly sized holes. They are. It was so loud. This happened when my husband and I were asleep and my grandkids could have been spending the night. It was about a dozen bullets fired into Debbie O'Malley's home. She was one of four Democratic officials targeted in a series of drive-by shootings weeks after the 2022 midterms. A newly unsealed indictment now reveals federal charges against this man, Solomon Pena, for being the mastermind of the shootings. He's a former Republican candidate on the 2022 ballot. Pena lost by a landslide, but tweeted he stood with Trump and never conceded his own race in New Mexico. Hi, my name's Solomon Pena. Can I speak with Debbie O'Malley? Ring video from shortly after the election captures him going to one of the Democrats' homes. Prosecutors say he blamed them for his election loss. And according to the indictment, Pena then texted those home addresses to accomplices to carry out the shootings, writing, they just certified it. They were literally laughing at us. Prosecutors say Pena directly took part in two of the shootings. None of the victims were injured. We've got the rest over here. Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa was also targeted. Eight bullets were fired at her house, four of them into the room where she had just been playing with her granddaughter. It makes me angry that one person makes me angry that we have a former president and current elected officials in highest level of government that think it's okay to, you know, invoke violence in these situations. As the country kicks off another election cycle, federal prosecutors say the message from New Mexico is this. We all stand here together, united to say that acts of violence will never stop an American from doing her duty. There are 11 federal counts in this indictment. They vary from conspiracy charges, election interference to firearms violations. If convicted, Pena does face a mandatory minimum of 60 years behind bars. And Jake, we did reach out to his attorney. We did not hear back. Jake. All right, Kyung La, thanks so much. A hiker alone and dying in Mount Everett's uh, death zone. How one Sherpa pulled off one of the most dangerous and daring rescues at the top of the tallest mountain in the world. That's coming up on The Leap. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an incredible and daring rescue from the death zone of Mount Everest. A Sherpa saves another climber trapped and dying only 1,100 feet from the summit. We're gonna go inside this insane rescue that happened during the mountain's 
deadliest climbing season in years. Plus, taking the pride out of Pride Month, businesses and event organizers in Florida are toning down their LGBTQ pride celebrations because they are afraid. What are they afraid of? And leading this hour with our 2024 lead, a busy day on the campaign trail as Republican presidential contenders hit key early states. Former President Donald Trump has been busy in Iowa meeting the holy trinity of campaigning. Faith leaders, conservative advocates, and grassroots organizers. Later tonight, Mr. Trump is participating in a taped town hall with Fox's Sean Hannity. But we're going to start in New Hampshire, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is promising to counterpunch against Trump's many attacks in the 2024 presidential primary race. Of course, the question is, will counterpunching be enough or does he need a knockout? CNN's Jessica Dean is in Manchester, New Hampshire, ahead of DeSantis's next event. And Jessica, uh, we are seeing something of a pattern emerge when it comes to DeSantis's approach on all things Trump related. That's exactly right. As we follow him along on these first swings as a candidate through these early states, we were in Iowa, now we're in New Hampshire, Jake. And what we're seeing emerge is when he's on the stump, he's talking indirectly about former President Trump. He's never naming him. It's when he gets off the stump and talks to media that we get those more direct hits that he's taking at him. And that seems to be kind of the needle he's trying to thread right now. Because remember, a lot of these voters he's talking to may have potentially uh, voted or most likely voted for former President Trump in the past. So he has to kind of uh, walk a fine line here. And what we're also seeing is how he is pitching himself to voters. And that's really starting to come into focus. And what we're seeing, the lane they're really carving out for him and that he's carving out for himself is that of a sitting executive. He's not a former anything. He is a sitting governor in Florida. And when he talks to voters, he's really going through and outlining what he and his team have referred to as the Florida blueprint. And he goes through and talks about all of his accomplishments, what he's done in Florida, how he believes that could apply to to the entire country and he really focuses on results and again one of those kind of indirect swipes that we heard today and it's a line that he repeats over and over is how he believes that running for president and being president isn't about entertainment uh, that it isn't about building a brand and you can see who he's directing that at but it's about getting results and really that is what he and his team are focused on pitching to voters is that he can get results now whether or not uh, voters will respond to that of course that's the big test out here on the road and he takes it to South Carolina tomorrow. Again, it'll be his first trip to that state as a presidential candidate. And Jake, uh, telling us a lot, he ends the week right where he started back in Iowa. He'll be there with Senator Joni Ernst, and we do expect him uh, to continue to hit the campaign trail pretty aggressively. He's done four stops. This will be his last stop of the night here in Manchester. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Manchester, New Hampshire, thanks so much. Continuing with our 2024 lead, uh, Ron DeSantis has also been attacking former President Trump for once trusting Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease physician. I think he did great for three years, but when he turned the country over to Fauci in March of 2020, that destroyed millions of people's lives. CNN's K-File has found some comments that DeSantis himself made about Dr. Fauci at that very same time during the pandemic. Uh, CNN K-File senior editor Andrew Kaczynski is here. Andrew, the Florida governor uh, has not always disparaged Dr. Fauci. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right, uh, Jake. Uh, some pandemic revisionism from the DeSantis campaign, uh, attacking Trump uh, for comments, praising Fauci, saying he turned over the country to Fauci. Uh, And that's despite that Ron DeSantis was actually praising Dr. Fauci at the exact same time, saying uh, in 
uh, campaign events that he would defer to Fauci's guidance on the pandemic. Uh, he, uh, when he, um, he even advocated uh, policies that DeSantis now criticizes as lockdowns. Take a listen to this clip of DeSantis from late March uh, 2020 talking about Fauci. You have a lot of people there who are working very, very hard uh, and they're not getting a lot of sleep and they're really focusing on a big country that we have. And uh, and from from Dr. Burks to Dr. Fauci to the vice president, who's worked very hard, um, the surgeon general, uh, they, they are really doing a good job. It's a tough, tough situation, but but they're working hard. So what's actually ironic here, Jake, uh, is that their views on the pandemic uh, were largely the same. You know, DeSantis was one of the first governors to reopen. Uh, Trump was urging those reopenings uh, in uh, April. And then he praised DeSantis for doing that. Uh, look at this quote um, that we got from the spokesperson for uh, the DeSantis campaign when we reached out to them. We asked them about this. And what they told us was that, like most Americans, the governor initially assumed medical officials were going to serve the interests of the people and keep politics out of their decision making. When it became clear that this wasn't the case, the governor charted his own course and never looked back. Governor DeSantis would have fired Anthony Fauci. Yeah, and I, I see the, uh, the DeSantis campaign today uh, on Twitter attacking Donald Trump for standing by uh, the COVID uh, vaccine. Um, it's very, very interesting. And Andrew Kaczynski, uh, thank you so much. Uh, today, uh, Donald Trump uh, returned to Iowa to rub shoulders with locals at, at a much smaller gathering than the large rallies he has traditionally been known for. His arrival coming after his chief rival, Ron DeSantis, crisscrossed the Hawkeye State this week in his first campaign appearances as an official presidential candidate. Uh, DeSantis, obviously, now in New Hampshire. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us live with more on this. And Caitlin, this back and forth between uh, Trump and DeSantis uh, it keeps going on. Uh, during today, both of their stops, they're going back and forth uh, attacking each other. Tell us about that. Yeah. And I should note, based on what Andrew just reported there just a few moments ago, the Trump campaign sent out a link to his article, basically flagging those comments that he found that DeSantis made about Fauci in the past. But it is in Iowa, which is the latest stage where they have been trading uh, these threat or these insults, I should note, to one another. You're really seeing DeSantis, who for months kind of absorbed a lot of the insults coming his way from the former president, is now counterpunching, using one of Trump's favorite words. Trump himself is in Des Moines today, Jake. He also was going after DeSantis several times, talking about the disparity in their polling, how far ahead he is of Governor DeSantis when you look at the average of those polls right now nationwide, but also talking about Iowa specifically with the former president saying that he believes there's no way that they could lose Iowa. Obviously, it would be incredibly devastating if he did, given he's the former former sitting former president and the Republican frontrunner at this time. He also, Jake, went after DeSantis for those comments he made recently, uh, basically arguing that if Trump was reelected, he'd only have one more term in office, while DeSantis would be able to potentially have eight years in office. And the difference that he could make with Republican priorities on that, Trump pushed back on that today. But when I heard uh, DeSantis go out and say, uh, and, and talk about eight years. We need eight years. You don't need eight years. You need six months. We can turn this thing around so quickly. If you need eight years, who the hell wants to wait eight years? You don't need eight years. Former President Trump says he'd do it in six months. There you go, ma'am. Why didn't he do it his first four years? No, 
It's clear that this is what this is going to look like. Obviously, DeSantis has to walk a fine line when it comes to this because he is trying to get Trump voters to vote for him and to come into his circle. But also, uh, you're really seeing him go after Trump in a way that we had not seen before his official campaign launch last week. Hmm. And Caitlin, you were part of the terrific uh, reporting team, along with uh, Paula Reed and Caitlin Plants, that broke that story about special counsel Jack Smith obtaining a recording of Trump uh, discussing how he had a classified document uh, about uh, an attack on Iran by the U.S. that he took with him from the White House. Uh, tell us about Trump's response today. He's not really responding much at all. Our Jeff Zeleny tried to ask him about it. He did not answer the shouted questions from CNN in response to this reporting didn't engage. Of course, we saw his attorney, Jim Trusty last night talking about it publicly, but not really offering a lot of clarity about this document, about whether or not it's been returned to the National Archives or why it was taken to Bedminster in the first place. Trump did comment to the Cedar Rapids Gazette. He called the reporting fake news. Obviously, it's not just been confirmed and written by CNN, but also confirmed by other outlets. But you didn't see Trump responding to it on camera. He did make a comment today when he was speaking at that smaller event that you referenced to the investigations into him. He said he is, quote, the victim of many things. Obviously, that's how he views it. The question, though, is whether or not he has greater legal exposure following that reporting and what we now know the special counsel has in their possession. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, Let's discuss uh, with my august panel, uh, Abby Phillip. Uh, Trump is known for using derogatory nicknames for his political adversaries. He's created a litany of them, uh, of Ron DeSantis. Today, uh, the Florida governor responded, that's part of why voters did not return him to the White House. Take a listen. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons he's not in the White House now, because I think he alienated too many voters uh, for things that really don't matter. So I don't care what they say about me in terms of name calling, although, you know, I would say he needs to call me a winner because we've won in Florida over and over again. (laughs) Have voters actually soured on Trump over the name calling? Is there evidence of that? I think that what DeSantis is referring to is a different set of voters. I think the general election voters, the independents, the persuadables, the people that a Republican nominee would need to win in order to win the presidency. There is evidence, uh, not just in the presidential election in 2020, but also in the midterms in uh, 2018, in uh, 2020, in the congressional races in 2020, and then also even in 2022, that voters... uh, are kind of uh, souring on uh, the divisiveness. They think both sides are pretty toxic. But in particular, I think Trump's toxicness was damaging to him. But when it comes to the Republican primary, that's a different set of voters that that DeSantis has to contend with. And this is where it gets tough for him, because Republican primary voters, they kind of do like Trump's, uh, you know, kind of fighter instincts, the way that he uh, is sort of entertaining and how he makes nicknames out of his opponents. And DeSantis is going to have to figure out, how do I deal with that? He's trying a logic argument. We'll see if that works. But I think folks need to come to terms with the fact that Trump's entertainment factor is a huge part of his appeal to Republican voters. And uh, former Congresswoman uh, Mia Love, um, Donald Trump campaigning, uh, stood by uh, the COVID vaccine, said a lot of people out there appreciate it. He he stood by, even though one of the voter took him on saying that they didn't like the jab. Uh, DeSantis is aligning himself with the people who are anti-vaccine. What what do you make of that? I think DeSantis has got, he's making some choices. Some good, to fight back was good. 
some to fight against to fight against uh, or attack Donald Trump on criminal justice reform. Those aren't good. Obviously, there are people who um, we all look and we see what the COVID vaccine has done and how many lives it saved. That's not that's not a good thing um, for him to fight him on. I mean, he's making some choices and some of those choices aren't going to work with mainstream Republicans and he's got to get the mainstream Republicans. Karen, more and more Republicans are teasing possible presidential runs, including uh, Mike Pence uh, next week. Uh, and I want to get your reaction to what New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, uh, who is also considering uh, running, he says about that. Come November, December of this year, if you're not polling well, get your butt out of this race. Let's narrow it down okay. to a, a couple candidates. That's more, more fair to the process. And I think that's going to be the discipline, not just for the candidates, but for the donor base. They have to tell their candidates to get out, right? They, and, and I think they will. And this is not going to be a repeat of 2016. <laughs> so um, th yeah. th that, uh, he said something similar uh, to me, uh, Karen, uh, on Sunday. Uh, what do you make of that, the idea of, like, by December, you need to start clearing the field? Well, no one's, I think very few will actually do that because the whole point is you want to get to Iowa, see how you do and see if you can get some momentum. And given that, you know, in a number of instances, the person who wins Iowa is not necessarily the person who ends up being the nominee. So I doubt that many will, uh, you know, take that advice. But clearly the concern he's trying to put forward here is that the more people who get into the race, the more fractured the vote becomes, which could create more of an opportunity for Donald Trump, which is, you know, as you know, one of the reasons that people like uh, former Governor Chris Christie is thinking about getting in, which the idea of someone needs to take Donald Trump on more directly. And as our own uh, reporting indicated, not just off camera or off the stage, but on the stage more directly challenge him. So I don't think many of the candidates or potential candidates will heed uh, that message from Sununu, but it was a nice try. <laughs> Abby, um, there are a lot, Abby, there are a lot of uh, concerns among voters, Democrats uh, included, uh, about President Biden's age uh, and about his ability uh, to serve for six more years, five more years. Um, and then there was an incident today. We shouldn't make too big a deal out of it. We're told that he, he's not uh, hurt, but it certainly doesn't help. Uh, he fell. Uh, he tripped while uh, walking uh, during the Air Force uh, Academy commencement ceremony today. He tripped on something, either a sandbag or some sort of cable or, or something. Um, this, this does come as he's facing growing scrutiny uh, about his age and, uh, and wherewithal. Yeah, I mean, look, this is uh, not good. It's not anything that the White House or his campaign wants for two reasons. One, uh, the optics of it are absolutely bad. Uh, but secondly, I mean, in general, uh, it is not good for uh, uh, the, uh, the president, especially one of President Biden's age, to take a fall. Uh, falls are dangerous, actually, from a factual perspective. And so, look, this is not good news for the White House. They don't want to be dealing with this narrative. I've also been hearing from a lot of Republicans who are very eagerly, eagerly sending around old clips of, uh, you know, articles talking about when Trump uh, kind of tiptoed down uh, a, a slope 
and uh, seemed to be worried about falling in a situation and how that was interpreted by the media. I think the White House is now going to be dealing with something they've been dealing with, which is concerns about the president's age, but also Republicans in particular trying to uh, make this a contrast between Trump and Biden. And uh, that's not the conversation they want to have at all. So it ha- it happened. They'll have to deal with it. Uh, but but it's certainly not something I think the White House is particularly happy about, though they couldn't do anything yeah. about it. it. It reminds me of a very different dynamic when Bob Dole, who was the presidential candidate in, for Republicans in 1996, fell off a stage mm-hmm. and the media made a big deal out of that. Obviously, very different age contrast with incumbent President Bill Clinton. Thanks to all of you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. This Sunday, I will be in Iowa hosting a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former South Carolina governor and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern. Then on Wednesday, it is the CNN Republican presidential town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. That's June 7th at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. That one will be uh, with Dana Bash. Coming up, unexpected side effects, some of the welcomed outcomes from patients who took medications such as Ozempic, trying to lose weight. That's ahead. Plus, a new sexual assault lawsuit filed against Bill Cosby by a former Playboy model who says she was motivated by E. Jean Carroll's case against Donald Trump. Turning to our national lead now, it is the first day of June, which means is the official start of Pride Month, a time dedicated to celebrating and commemorating the LGBTQ community, which has been demonized for centuries. In Florida, some Pride events are being significantly scaled back or canceled altogether, as CNN's Victor Blackwell reports. Some organizers of these Pride events say a new state law targeting drag performances is to blame. Pride across Florida will be noticeably less colorful this year. Festival organizers are making significant changes or canceling altogether some LGBTQ plus celebrations. They fear potential consequences from Governor Ron DeSantis' new law that many believe targets public drag performances, a mainstay of Pride events. Welcome, welcome to St. Cloud's first Pride event. It's very disheartening. Christina Bozinich, coordinator of Pride in St. Cloud, canceled the Orlando area event that was planned to include drag performers. According to the new law signed by DeSantis just weeks ago, local governments are banned from issuing public permits for events that include some adult live performances. Venues risk steep fines and losing licensing if a child is present. Knowingly admitting a child would be a first-degree misdemeanor. Once the bill was signed, I said, we can restructure the event. We'll make sure it's only 18 and up for that portion. Um, They went and talked with all the performers and came back to me and said, we're really sorry, but we just don't feel safe. Organizers in Port St. Lucie canceled its annual Pride Parade. They reached an agreement with the city to host a slimmed down festival. Drag performers were welcome, but anyone under 21 was not. I was in the closet for so many years and I still face hatred and oppression. And I can't even go to my own Pride Fest. Kissimmee Pride is on, but drag, indoors only. For example, drag bingo will be taking place inside of our Civic Center. And it will be an event where we will be requiring IDs. And we're also asking folks to go ahead and pre-register online to participate. John Panessa's Orlando restaurant Hamburger Mary's hosts drag shows most nights. He's filed a federal lawsuit against the state. He claims he's losing business because of the new law. DeSantis' office has not responded to a CNN request for comment on the lawsuit. We have a street party with a stage. 
with the performers out front during Pride. We usually get three or 4,000 people on the street watching. That's something we can't do. At the start of a month that's in part a celebration of visibility, some feel that the Sunshine State is shoving them back into darkness. Now with uh, the governor stepping in and the legislation that's going through, it's, we're moving back in time. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate for us and everybody else in the state because what they're doing, it's heartbreaking. And these are the beginnings of gay days here in Central Florida. More than 150,000 people from around the world are coming here to celebrate Pride. You'll see them in their red shirts at the major theme parks. The organizer says that they are working with hotels to try to make sure that their events do not run afoul of the new laws. However, if you go to their website, there is a drag queen bingo event that has in big, bold letters highlighted, open to all ages. So we'll see how that happens. They say they have invited the governor to attend Drag Queen Brigo. He's unlikely to do so. Back to you. All right, Victor Blackwell in Orlando, Florida, thanks so much. The show will not go on for one drag performance in Nevada. The Pentagon is preventing a previously approved drag show from happening at the Nellis Air Force Base, stopping what would have been its third annual performance. A Pentagon spokesperson said drag shows are not an appropriate use of U.S. military bases. The sudden move comes after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's comments to lawmakers during a hearing in March where he said, quote, drag shows are not something the Defense Department supports or funds, unquote. Gene Casares is here now to talk to us about our uh, lead uh, having to do with the growing questions surrounding Donald Trump uh, following CNN's blockbuster reporting. Uh, We're going to bring that to you next. And our law and justice lead, Bill Cosby, the man once regarded as America's dad, that was a long time ago, is being sued in a new sexual assault lawsuit. The civil lawsuit was filed today in Los Angeles by former Playboy model Victoria Valentino, who says that Cosby drugged and raped her more than five decades ago. Cosby is now 85 years old. He's no stranger, of course, to facing accusations like this of rape and sexual assault or prison time for that matter. In 2018, he was found guilty of drugging and sexually assaulting a woman in 2004. Cosby was let out just three years later after Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned his conviction based on a prior agreement that had been made with a prosecutor's office. CNN's Gene Casares is following this latest uh, civil lawsuit. And Gene, uh, tell us more and tell us about the law that allowed this woman to file this uh, this uh, lawsuit based on something that happened so long ago. Victoria Valentino is 80 years old, and this law just came out. It is the California Sexual Abuse and Accountability Act. Victoria Valentino knew about this, but she said it was the E. Jean Carroll trial that really gave her the courage to come forward. And she is alleging that Bill Cosby sexually assaulted her and sexual battery in 1969. And she says that she was a young actress, that she was auditioning for a role. She was in the trailer of Bill Cosby. He was there. Her young six-year-old son had just died. And, And I remember her telling me this story because she was every day at the Bill Cosby criminal trial in Pennsylvania. Every day she had flown out from California. She was in that courtroom. And he had, it was very traumatic because he had drowned in a pool. 
And so she then, later in 1969, saw Bill Cosby again at a restaurant. She was with her girlfriend. And he said, look, you need, because she was still emotional, you need to go to a spa, have a treatment. My chauffeur will pick you up a little bit later and we'll all go to dinner. So she and her girlfriend went to the spa. The chauffeur picked them up. They went to the restaurant. Bill Cosby takes out pills. She is alleging this complaint. He put a pill next to her dinner plate, next to her girlfriend's dinner plate. He took a pill, but she doesn't think he actually swallowed it. But she thought, he took one, I'll take one. So she swallowed it. She started to feel dizzy. He said, let's go to my office. I want to show you some of my awards. Next thing she remembers, she wakes up. He's trying to sexually assault her girlfriend. She moves in to stop. He turns around and she says that's when she was sexually assaulted. We've got her statement. She says, by breaking my silence and speaking my truth, I hope this serves as my legacy to my family and shows those survivors who have yet to find their voices that hope and healing are possible. Bill Cosby has issued a response and he says, Victoria Valentino has skirted from town to town promoting her alleged allegations against Mr. Cosby to anyone who would give her platform without any proof or facts. However, it is more deeply disturbing and disappointing that our lawmakers would push forward these look-back windows. He also says, what graveyard can Mr. Cosby visit in order to dig up potential witnesses to testify on his behalf? Jake? It's a pretty sick comment considering the circumstances of her losing her son. Um, Jean Casares, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today, Donald Trump is refusing to directly answer questions about a recording now in the hands of federal prosecutors where Trump is, according to what we've been told, talking about classified materials that he kept after leaving the White House and knew they were classified. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst uh, Jennifer Rogers uh, to talk about this. Um, so how much does the revelation of this tape, uh, Jennifer, how much does it raise the stakes in terms of the legal liability Donald Trump has in this case? Well, it's hard to say without hearing it, Jake, but if it is, as has been reported, it could raise it quite a bit. I mean, there are a few issues here. One is that it expands the scope of the investigation. We've been talking about documents found at Mar-a-Lago in 2022. Now this is a conversation had perhaps a document possessed in Bedminster in New Jersey in 2021. That means potentially a whole new set of charges, and those charges could be based in New Jersey. So prosecutors may actually have choices here in terms of where they bring this case, uh, and they may have a whole other set of charges based on not just this document, if they can figure out what document it is, but of course the testimony surrounding the meeting and the document and whatever else they find in the investigation. It's also, of course, great evidence of knowledge and intent, which are things that they need to prove. And finally, prosecutors love recordings. If they have Donald Trump on a recording that they can play for the jury, jurors are persuaded by hearing a defendant say in his own words and with his own voice that he did something that prosecutors have to prove. So earlier in the show, I spoke with former Trump attorney uh, Tim Parlatori. Uh, he uh, was Trump's attorney, one of Trump's attorneys until a few weeks ago. I want to get your reaction to one of the many interesting comments he made. Take a listen. So when the Trump legal team sent a letter to the House Intelligence Committee at the end of April, and you were part of the team at this time, uh, the letter said in part, quote, we have seen absolutely no indication that President Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke any laws. That doesn't seem to be true based on this reporting. Um, And I guess I'm wondering, are you concerned at all that the Trump team 
made a false statement to Congress. No, what we put in that letter, everything that's in that letter was certainly true at the time that we wrote it. Uh, if some other information comes out that shows that portions of it, you know, were inaccurate, you know, that's that's a different issue. That's really interesting. What do you make of that, Jennifer? I'm kind of surprised by the way he responded, honestly, because by using the words knowingly and willfully, they're kind of protecting themselves against a an argument that they lied. I mean, that's lawyer speak. That's the same thing they would say, honestly, if they were standing up in a closing argument and arguing to a jury that, that Trump did nothing wrong. Uh, but what he said is, oh, well, maybe we didn't know everything that's known now. So that, to me, is almost an admission that, in fact, they didn't have all the facts when they were first consulting with their client and that a lot more is known now that may change their opinion. So it's a surprising answer. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be brought up on charges of lying to Congress because of that letter, but I think it's a, a revelation what he said, actually. Yeah, and he only left the Trump legal team two-plus weeks ago. I mean, it's not like it's that much time has passed. Jennifer Rogers, thank you so much for your expertise. As always, appreciate it. Coming up, Death Zone Rescue. See the harrowing act to save a climber clinging to a rope in one of the most dangerous areas of the very dangerous Mount Everest. In our world, a climber on Mount Everest is home safe after he was found freezing and clinging to a rope near the mountain's summit. A Sherpa found that climber, 27,932 feet above sea level in an area called the death zone of Everest, where the air is too thin for humans to breathe and temperatures can dip to negative negative 86 degrees Fahrenheit, that Sherpa abandoned his ascent up the world's tallest mountain and carried the climber on his back to safety. CNN's Issa Suarez has the details of this harrowing and extremely rare rescue. At the ominously named death zone of Mount Everest, during one of the deadliest climbing seasons on record... Nepali guide Gelji Sherpa carried out a rare and almost impossible rescue mission. It was midnight when he saw a Malaysian climber clinging to a rope, shivering in freezing temperatures. Just over 1,100 feet away from the 29,000 feet high summit. The air too thin for humans to breathe and for helicopters to land. It was important for us to rescue him, even from the summit. Money can be earned any time. Left like that, he could have died. We have saved his life by quitting the summit. Gelji convinced his client to abandon their summit climb attempt so they could save the Malaysian climber's life. Gelji wrapped the stressed climber a sleeping mat and hauled him down with another guide's help. We had brought him down from Camp 4, carrying him on our backs, because dragging was impossible. It took me five to six hours to get from 8,500 meters to 7,900. It was very difficult. From there, a helicopter lifted the climate down to base camp. The favorable spring weather is gradually turning even more unpredictable due to climate change. 11 people died on Everest in 2019, a climbing season that saw unprecedented traffic and long delays in the same death zone near the summit. 
This season, Nepal issued a record 478 climbing permits. So far, 12 people, including an American, have died. The highest number for eight years and another five are missing. The unidentified climber was put on a flight back to Malaysia last week. Thanks to Gelji, his name was kept off the list of the mountain's victims. And Jake, experts say this was a rather daring rescue by this brave Sherpa. And just to add some context to this, the death zone is the last and the most difficult, as well as the highest part of the Everest, is where the limits of human survivability are severely tested, where oxygen levels are so low that it can actually affect the climber's judgment. While speaking about the rescue, this hero Sherpa said that saving one life is more important than praying at the monastery. Jake? All right, thanks to Issa Suarez for that report. Plus, this Sherpa who saved that climber's life will be joining Anderson Cooper this evening to share his story. That's at AC360 at 8 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in. Coming up next here on The Lead, what is it in medications such as Ozempic that is helping some people kick some very difficult-to-break bad habits? Could it be a solution for others? There are some early, early indications that some weight loss drugs might help some people cut out addictive behaviors. Some people who use Ozempic say they have started to drink and smoke less. And researchers are studying to see whether these weight loss drugs could even potentially help mitigate use of fentanyl. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell reports. These days, Sherry Ferguson has swapped her vape pen for an Ozempic pen. I thought, I'm not enjoying vaping, so I may as well just put this into the battery bin at work and I'll see how long I can go without it. And that was 54 days ago. Ferguson started using Ozempic 11 weeks ago to combat weight gained during the pandemic that she says was increasing her risk of diabetes. A smoker for much of her life, Ferguson switched to vaping last July. But after starting Ozempic, she says something changed. It's like someone's just come along and switched a light on and you can see the room for what it is. And all of these vapes and cigarettes that you've had over the years, it just, they don't look attractive anymore. It's, it's very... Very strange, very strange. Ferguson is one of many patients taking drugs like Ozempic for weight loss who say they've also lost interest in some addictive behaviors. Doctors told CNN that patients most commonly report an effect on alcohol use. It may be because these drugs in a class known as GLP-1s have an effect not just in the gut but also in the brain. It's something being studied at the National Institutes of Health where researchers just published a paper showing semaglutide, the active ingredient in Ozempic, reduced what they called binge-like alcohol drinking in rodents. We believe that at least one of the mechanisms how these drugs reduce alcohol drinking is by reducing the rewarding effects of alcohol, such as those related to a neurotransmitter in our brain, which is dopamine. So these medications are likely to make alcohol less rewarding. And it's not just alcohol and nicotine. Patients have even told The Atlantic it had effects on behaviors like nail biting and online shopping. There is a lot of overlap on the neurobiological mechanism that regulate addictive behaviors in general. So it's possible 
that medications like semaglutide, by acting on this specific mechanism in the brain, they may help people with a variety of addictive behaviors. Clinical trials in humans are needed to prove that. One set is underway at the University of North Carolina, looking at semaglutide's effect on alcohol and tobacco use. Sherry Ferguson says Ozempic has helped her lose 38 pounds. Even better, she says, is how it's made her feel. The weight that it takes off your mind is far greater than any pounds that can come off off your body. You know, we've reached out to the makers of drugs like this, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, which makes a similar drug, Manjaro. They are not currently running clinical trials looking at these medicines in addiction, Jake. This traditionally has not been a market that pharma has been that interested in. Back to you. Meg Terrell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Our politics lead brings us back to Philadelphia, where history will be made this fall in the city's mayoral election. Either the first woman or the first Asian American will take the city's top job. Last week, we interviewed Democratic nominee Sherelle Parker. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to talk to the Republican nominee, David O. David, thanks so much for joining us. And the obvious question, Philadelphia hasn't had a Republican mayor, I don't think, since the 1950s. You're running in a city where Democrats outnumber Republicans seven to one. Um, You've made your number one campaign issue crime. Understandably, crime is is out of control in Philly. Your opponent, Sherelle Parker, told us on the lead last week that public safety was also her number one priority. So how are you going to break through on this issue, given that your Democratic opponent is also talking about it? Yeah, I think it comes down to credibility. I mean, a year ago, she had a very different position. She signed a letter to defund the police. She voted against the police funding in two budgets. And uh, she has changed that position, which is fine, except it just raises the question of whether it is credible or not. I mean, I think it is right to want to support law enforcement. I think it's important to answer the public's call for uh, public safety. However, she also uh, sponsored a referendum against stop and frisk uh, and recently said that she is for a constitutional type of uh, stop and frisk, which I oppose because there is no such thing. There is constitutional stop and frisk. It it arises, but you cannot uh, instruct the police to go out and manufacture those circumstances. Therefore, uh, it is important that when we use police, that the police do not break the law. They abide by the law Mm -hmm. and they protect the constitutional rights and civil rights of people. One of the big arguments she had for her candidacy during the primary and since is that she has a strong connection to the community of Philadelphia. Take a listen. My lived experience is closest to the people who are feeling the most pain in our city, the most pain of gun violence and neighborhood blight and struggling schools and lack of opportunity. Uh, But now, Jake, with our win uh, in me, these communities are now closest to the power. You also grew up in Philly. How is your lived experience different or is it? Um, I grew up in a section which is a high crime area. It's uh, an African-American area of Philadelphia. I've lived on the same block since 1963. Uh, I've lived through the gang war years, through the crap epidemic, through many of the ills that occurs in Philadelphia. I'm quite familiar with that uh, type of living. I went to public school. I was uh, um, in public school until I went to uh, 
Central High School and then Dickinson College. So I live there today with my four kids. People ask me, why, you don't, why don't you move out? It's a very dangerous area. But as a public official and also as a son of a pastor who started his church and community center in that area, uh, I am uh, staying in the community uh, as part of trying to revitalize it and make sure that mm -hmm. uh, we appreciate the community that we live in. All right, David O., thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Can you hear me now? Alexa's big ears are going to cost Amazon millions of dollars. Plus, coming in the Situation Room, Senator Chris Coons on the last crucial vote to pass the debt deal before it's too late. In our tech lead now, Amazon has agreed to pay more than $30 million to settle a pair of federal lawsuits. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, says that Amazon allegedly kept videos and voice data from Alexa and gave employees of Amazon unrestricted access to all consumer video from Ring cameras. Amazon released a statement that says, quote, while we disagree with the FTC's claims regarding both Alexa and Ring and deny violating the law, these settlements put these matters behind us, unquote. Not really. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. Actually, he's replaced by Alex Marquardt today. I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 